The sermon text this morning is Revelation chapter 10, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, which is a fairly short chapter, it's 11 verses. So Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 to 11. This is God's Word. It is without error. It is God's holy Word, and it is His powerful Word, so... Let us pay careful attention to it as we hear it this morning. Revelation chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his leg, legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Please join me in asking the Lord's blessing as we hear his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would be with me, that you would give me the grace to proclaim your word faithfully and boldly, and that you would be with all who hear this morning that you would open up their hearts to receive your word. I pray that you would take from the, the riches and treasures of your word and you would meet every one of your people here this morning exactly where they need to be met, that you would give them the grace to examine their hearts, to see where there is repentance that they need, to see where they can grow in their love for Christ their obedience to him. Above all, though, I pray that you would open up our hearts to see the wonders and the joys of our Savior Jesus Christ, of him who gave himself for us, that we might become your children, that we might be washed white as snow in his blood. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, the, the book of Job is not the sermon text this morning, uh, 
But there is a very important um, aspect of the book of Job that I think will help us see very clearly what is going on in Revelation chapter 10. Uh, The book of Job is often uh, misunderstood um, for one uh, particular way. Uh, It's very easy for us as we're reading the book of Job, if you've read that recently, um, uh, maybe maybe you've uh, fallen into this, uh, where you think that Job must have done something wrong. He must have done something wrong to have all these bad things happen to him. Uh, although I do remember that Pastor Troutman was preaching on Job um, not too long ago, so uh, he, he, he probably has uh, made sure that you, uh, you haven't fallen into this, so, so maybe this is not as, as effective uh, in this church. Um, but it, I think it is easy for, for us to, to fall into that because uh, that's maybe our natural tendency. When bad things happen, when, when, when trials fall into our lives, we assume that it's because we did something wrong. Um, that we have fallen into sin and that the Lord is uh, disciplining us and correcting us. And, and that is certainly true that the Lord does that, doesn't he? The, the Lord in his love and in his kindness, he does discipline his children when we sin, when we begin to turn away from him. He disciplines us because he loves us, to bring us back to him, to, to give us repentance so that we would come back uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and we, would, uh, we would walk back on the proper path. But that's not the only reason that trials come into our lives. That's not the only reason that we face difficulties as God's people. And that's not why Job was facing um, trials that I think uh, many of us have never faced, the, the kinds of trials. I mean, almost everything from an earthly standpoint was taken from Job. And we see very clearly in the, the first chapter of Job that Job was a righteous man. He wasn't suffering these things because he was sinning. I actually even remember this um, from Pastor Troutman, um, that uh, the, the, the danger, though, for Job was that, although it wasn't because of his sin, when all of these things happened to him, his temptation then would be to grumble against the Lord. And to complain against him. To actually fall into sin. And we actually see that in Job, don't we? That, that he, he does eventually begin to question God. And, uh, and so the, the trials that, that come to his life, they, they cause him to, to actually fall into sin. But it's not because of his sin. But that's what's so difficult about trials. That's what's so difficult about hardship in the Christian life. Is that we don't often, maybe even usually understand why these things have happened to us. We don't understand why God has allowed the various difficulties that we face to come into our life. I think that that makes us a lot like Job. He doesn't understand. He doesn't understand why these things are happening to him. And he cries out to the Lord and and eventually he, he, he actually does um, give in at times, at least, to temptation. But finally, the Lord brings him back to his senses. And, and, and how does he do that? Well, he does that by showing Job that, that his ways are so far above and beyond Job's ability to understand that Job just has to get to the point where he can submit himself to the Lord, where he can trust the Lord and know that he's not going to understand everything. Maybe even that he's not going to understand most things. 
that happened to him. I, I find that the older I get, I feel that I understand less and less about what God is doing in my life. I feel like even as by God's grace, I might grow in my knowledge of Scripture, I still find that life seems more confusing in many ways. Not, not because, um, because I don't know the Lord and I don't know uh, His good purposes, um, but life is just hard, isn't it? There, there's so many things, the older you get, where you, you, you face trials that you, you probably didn't anticipate when you were younger. Uh, when you were when you were a kid, when you were a teenager, maybe even in your your early uh, adulthood, and when we face these trials, it is very easy for us to fall into sin, to grumble against the Lord, to to say to Him, I, I don't understand what You're doing, and I don't like it, and I don't want it anymore. Uh, Job was, was tempted in that way, and Job's confession, eventually when he's confronted by God, is to say to the Lord, I understood merely the outskirts of your ways. I, I barely e- could even see just the, the far, far distant suburbs of who you are. And that's finally when Job has come to the place he needs to be, to be able to say that I will trust in you, Lord. I will submit myself to you even though all of this has happened and even though I don't understand very much of it. I think that that, that's the main idea of our text this morning. Um, That's the main idea. That's this little scroll that we encounter in the book of Revelation in chapter 10. It shows us that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ brings us hope and it brings us joy in the midst of uncertain and troubling times, in the midst of very dark and difficult times, the gospel brings us joy. And it does that, I would suggest to you this morning, in three different ways. First of all, by encouraging us to wait on God when His purposes are hidden from us. Secondly, by orienting our lives toward the return of Jesus Christ. And thirdly, by giving us the grace to rest in the sweetness of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us while we wait. So it gives us the grace to wait in faith when we don't understand, to orient our lives toward the return of Christ, and to rest in the meantime while we wait for Christ to come back for us and to deliver us from all of our troubles. Well, before we dive into those three points, we first of all need to know a little bit about what's happening here. We're, we're roughly in the middle of the book of Revelation, and we encounter, as we often do, angels in the book of Revelation. Here, we have an angel coming down from heaven, and we want to know, who is this angel? might seem at least somewhat obvious, because you read the word angel, and you think, okay, this is one of those heavenly beings that God has created, uh, one of his many messengers um, to, to do his will in the world. Well, this is, this is no mere, uh, this is no normal angel. I think if, we, if you stop and, and read these first verses again, you'll, you'll see that, right? This is not a normal angel. This is an angel who's wrapped in a cloud who has a rainbow over his head, whose face shines like the sun, 
and his, his legs like pillars of fire. That is not the language of a created being, in fact. That is the language of God himself. Where do we see this? Well, if we were to go back to the prophet Ezekiel, you would come across that language of uh, Ezekiel looking up to heaven and seeing the throne of God upon a rainbow. Whenever God comes in judgment, he comes riding on the clouds. If you were to go back to the the beginning of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 1, you'd see that Jesus is the one who's described as having his face shining, this intense almost blinding light when you look at his face and his legs like burnished bronze shining brightly. I would say that this angel is in fact the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that we can call him an angel is because of the the actual meaning of the word angel. Angel simply means messenger. An angel is a messenger of God. The Lord Jesus Christ is the supreme messenger of sent from the Father. If you read a little bit further, I think this will become even more obvious. Verse 2. He sets his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. Why? Because they belong to him. Because he's sovereign over all of creation. And then he calls out with this loud voice like a lion roaring. Well, who roars like a lion? It is the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ who roars like a lion. So, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is coming with a message for his people. He's coming with a message for his people. As is often the case in Revelation, there are, uh, there are these messages that come to John, and John is to write them down, and the reason he writes them down is to send them to the seven churches, to send them Ultimately, to all of God's people. This is the message we need to know uh, to be able to live life in this age, to be able to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in a dark and dying world. And so, like John, we want to know what this message is written on this little scroll. Um, the, The Lord Jesus Christ, this angel, when he roars, when he roars like a lion... He calls out, and the seven thunders sound, verse 4. Seven shows up throughout the book of Revelation, and it's always very, very important, right? There are seven, uh, there are seven seals on another scroll. There are seven trumpets that sound. There are seven bowls of God's wrath. There are seven histories of life in this age, and many more, seven after seven. Seven being the number of perfection, the number of completion. And all of those sevens in different ways are revealing things to us about the plan of God in this age. They're revealing what's coming in the future. Not in the kind of way that you could could pick up your newspaper and you can know, okay, on this date this will happen, on this date this will happen. But rather to tell you what God is doing in this world. The judgments that are falling on this world. The ways in which God is going to protect us his people in the midst of those judgments, the way that he's going to triumph over sin and Satan and over evil. And so all of those different sevens are so important for us for for understanding what God is doing in this age. So you come to these seven thunders and you want to know, what do these seven thunders mean? What is the significance of these for us as God's people 
in this age? What is this revealing about God's plan? And there is absolutely no way that you're ever going to figure it out. (laughs) And I can say that confidently. Uh, the, The reason I can say that confidently is because when this voice sounds and the seven thunders then sound in response, John is about to write verse 4, but he hears a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. The, The large scroll that had come before with seven seals on it, every time a seal is opened, you learn something and John writes it down and we know what they mean. And this is the exact opposite. In this instance, John is told not to write it down, but rather to seal it up. And there has been no um, shortage of ink spilled trying to figure out the meaning of these seven thunders. Commentators will, will, will find all sorts of ways to tell you what the seven thunders mean, and they're absolutely missing the point. You can't know what the seven thunders mean. It's impossible. And, and you can rack your brain, you can study this for years and years and years, and you're not going to figure it out. Now, I say that, and you might wonder then, well, why in the world is it here? Why would you put something in God's Word that you can't figure out the meaning of? And that is exactly the point. That's why it's here. These are, at at the very least, we, we could say that these are, as these other sevens, these are aspects of... God's judgment in the world, God's um, salvation of his people, right? The, the very fact that they are thunders, at least, hints in that direction, that it's God thundering um, in his judgment upon the world. And yet, they are sealed up. But that is exactly the point. And this is my, my first point, is that you can't know, and that's important. There is so much that God is doing in this age, that he's doing in the world, that is above us and is above our understanding and will always be above our understanding. It will be impossible for us to search out. That's why I opened up with with Job. We are like Job so often in our life where there's so much that's happening in our life. There's so much uh, that's, that's difficult for us even. Trials that have have entered into our life great struggles and, and hardship. Because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that's under God's judgment. We live in a world that's suffering the effects of the fall. We suffer that as, as individuals because of our own sin. We suffer because of the sins of others. And even when we haven't done wrong, though, even as God's people, when we haven't done wrong, we're still in a world under judgment. And because we're in a world under judgment, so many of those hardships will come to us through no fault of our own. And that's the very moment when Satan will tempt us. He'll tempt us to despair. He'll tempt us to question God and to question God's love and to question whether God really has all this under control. Do you, do you feel that? Do you, do you get to those points in your life where maybe you don't really admit it because you know better theologically, right? But you get to the point where you think, I, I just cannot possibly grasp what God is doing through this, this trial that's in my life. And uh, if, I could, if I could just figure it out, 
if I could just understand what he's doing, then I could trust him. I, I, I suspect that that's not really at the surface of your mind. I don't think that's, that's uh, for, for us who have been trained well in the scriptures, who've sat under good teaching for years and years, it's probably not right on the surface of your mind where you think, I'm not going to trust you, Lord. But I think often that is down below the surface, is that we think that if I could just figure it out, if I could just grasp why this is happening to me, why this, 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 this uh, very dark uh, trial has been placed into my life, then I could trust the Lord. Because it seems easy, doesn't it, sometimes, when, when you understand the purpose. If I could figure out, well, this is so that I will repent of this sin. That's why this trial came into my life. Or this is so that I could um, uh, be kinder to uh, my, my wife or my children or various things. Or this happened so that this person would be blessed in this way. You feel like if I could just grasp that, if I could grasp the plan of God, then, okay, I can trust you, Lord, because I know what you're doing. But how often is that not the case for us? Where we don't know what the Lord is doing. We don't know why he's placed this difficulty into our life. And maybe it's a year from now and you still don't know. Or five years from now and you still don't know. Ten years. Or what if it's until the day that you see the Lord Jesus Christ face to face and you still didn't know really fully why he placed that trial in your life? Will you trust him even in the midst of those times of uncertainty where you can't fully grasp what he's doing? It's very difficult, isn't it? But we know that he has us in the palm of his hand, in the midst of all of those trials. We know it's all written down. It's written on the, the little scroll. And yet it's sealed up. And the reason that this is in God's word is precisely so that in this moment, right now, we will say, Lord, I don't understand. I don't get it. But I know that you have this in your hands. I know that you love me, that you will work all things out for my good. And that's the very moment that uh, we, we must find ourselves. And that's, that's the point that we must get to is that we can confess to the Lord. Just like Job, I understood merely the outskirts of your ways. But I know that in your love and in your kindness that you have me in the palm of your hand. And so we, we're, we're taught in this text to wait on the Lord. To wait in faith. Even when we don't understand. Now, so often we can look back And we can see much of what God was doing in our lives. But so often we can't. And so we're called to wait. But secondly, we're called to turn our eyes to Christ and to the day of his return. To orient our lives toward the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that uh, after this, uh, these seven thunders have sounded and after this, Uh, this word is sealed up that the angel, Jesus, uh, then raises his right hand to heaven, verse 5, and he swears by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. 
that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. The seventh trumpet to be sounded is, is the, the sounding of the return of Christ. It's when he will come back to judge this world, but also to come back and to save and deliver all of us who are waiting for him, who are waiting for him in faith. Uh, there will be no more delay, uh, as is so often the case in Revelation. There, there's that language of Jesus coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. He opens the letter that way. The letter is closed in that, clo- uh, uh, closed in that way. Jesus is coming soon. Maybe it doesn't feel like that. It's often um, very easy for us to just be kind of lulled to sleep. Our, our, our word of command this morning to teach us to find our treasure not in the things of this earth that are passing away. We have to hear that so often because we can be just lulled to sleep and a kind of drowsiness, even as Christians, where the, the, the ordinary day-to-day things that we have to do, you know, the, the things that are even important that we have to do, just going about our life can bring our vision down from heaven, back down to earth, to where we, we forget about the fact that Jesus is coming back. Soon. We are going to stand before him very soon. It might not feel like that right now, but our life is a mere vapor in light of eternity. And it will, it will feel that way very soon. Because one way or another, we are all going to stand before Christ very, very soon. And so we, we, we read that there will be no more delay, that the trumpet is coming. It's, it's going to sound soon. And the reason that is here for us then is as we are learning to wait on the Lord Jesus Christ, we would also remember that he is coming back soon. He is coming back soon. And so this time is a time of patience for God. He is patient with us. Right? He is patient with the world even. God is patient so that all men and women, boys and girls, would repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a time of God's patience. But God's patience exists so that we would repent of our sin. His patience exists not so that we would become complacent in our sin, that we would just make peace with our sin, that we would say, I can repent tomorrow. I will repent tomorrow. Is that not one of Satan's chief weapons? is to tell us that we can delay repentance, that I can wait till tomorrow, that I, I hate my sin, but in fact, we've, what we've actually done is we have, uh, we've gotten to the point where we hate the consequences of our sin. Right? We, we hate what it does in our own lives. We hate what it does in our families. We hate the misery that it brings into, into, into our lives, um, but we don't actually hate the sin itself enough to truly repent of it. Uh, we've made peace with our sins so easily. Even as Christians, we can do that. Where we think, if I, it, I'll just, I'll repent tomorrow. Augustine's famous uh, phrase in, in his book, The Confessions, right? Lord, give me chastity. Give me purity. But not yet. That was, that was uh, what he was recounting before he was converted. It was that he, he, he prayed that prayer, essentially. I don't think he probably really prayed that, but that's what was really going on in his heart. He had, he had been confronted with the claims of the gospel, and he saw much of the goodness of Christ, but his sin still had a grip on his heart. And so he said, 
uh, truly in his heart, if he was honest, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. Is that not so easy for us then, brothers and sisters, to, to fall into that mentality that I have time, I'll repent later. But the seventh trumpet is coming. We will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ much sooner than we think. The delay is going to be no more. The mystery of God will soon be fulfilled. And today is the day to repent of our sins. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not in a month from now. So God's patience will not last forever. And that should motivate us to look in faith to that day when He will come back, when He will come back truly to deliver us. But it should also orient our lives to Him in that we do not make peace with our sin and put off until tomorrow what must be repented of today. Well, thirdly, in the midst of all of these trials that we face, in the midst of all of the the difficulties and the uncertainty of living as a Christian in this age and, and not fully grasping the plan of God, um, even as we orient our lives to the return of Christ, uh, this text gives us the hope to wait in faith and to find joy even in the midst of these trials, even in the midst of all that we don't understand. Verse 8, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel, and, and John, he takes this scroll from him, and he is told to take it and to eat it. And when he eats it, it will make his stomach bitter, but in his mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And so he does that very thing. He takes it, and that's exactly what happens. It says, sweet as honey in his mouth, but when he has eaten it, uh, it makes his stomach bitter. And then he's told to go out to the world and to prophesy. To prophesy to all the nations of the world. This is also language taken from the prophet Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel was told much the same thing. uh, To take that scroll, to eat it. Uh, What's the significance of that? Why this uh, interesting image of eating a scroll? Uh, Most basically, it's that Ezekiel and then also John, as prophets... They are not equipped to preach this message to the world until they have internalized it, right? Until it's come deep into their own souls. Until they, um, they, they know nothing but this message, that it has gripped them in every dimension of their being. And then John would be ready to take that message uh, to the world. I want to focus on the, the two sides of that message, right? The, the bitter side and the sweet side. Right? The, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is the sweetest word that a person could ever hear. That Jesus Christ gave himself on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. But even more than that, to, to, uh, to, to bring that... Uh, into this text, right? That the Lord Jesus Christ not only gave himself for us, but that as the perfect physician, he places hardships in our lives at exactly the right moment. Never more than we need, never less 
than we need, exactly what we need. As, as a doctor who knows the exact dosage and will never give us more, will never give us less than we need so that we would find our hope in Him. But that is the only message that will give us hope when we face darkness in this world. That is the sweetest word we could ever hear. That's the message that John proclaims. And yet there is a bitter side to that message. And and, and that bitterness is that this world is still fallen. This world is still a dark place. And this message will go out to the world, but many will stop up their ears and they will refuse to listen. They will refuse to hear what the Lord is saying to them. They will refuse to repent and, and to be saved. And so there is a bitterness to this message. The very message of salvation is a message of judgment for those who are outside of Christ, who haven't believed in Him. I think it's more than that, though. Uh, this, this sweet message is also tinged with bitterness, even for us as God's people. right? Because we receive Christ. We receive the goodness of Christ in the midst of great hardship in the midst of great suffering. And in different ways, all of us here have, have, have faced that, that suffering, and we will continue to face that suffering until we see Christ face to face. And so there's even an aspect in which this, this wonderful, sweet message of, of salvation in Christ and of the fact that, that Jesus has us in the palm of His hand, that He is going to hold us close to Him, to Himself, until that day when we see Him face to face, and then... He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That still comes to us in the midst of the bitterness of living in a fallen world where where our own sin uh, gets in the way of our being able to see Christ clearly. Our own sin gets in the way of our being able to find our rest and our hope in Him. Um, to, to, To cause us even to grumble against Him when we find it difficult. So there is that bitterness even to this this wonderful message of salvation in Christ. Well, as I I draw to a close this morning, I I think about uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2. And the reason is this, because when he is preaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, he says these words in Acts chapter 2. He says, this Jesus who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The most wicked act in all of human history, the the, the most uh, supreme manifestation of the bitterness of life in this fallen age, the darkest event ever to occur, if we're thinking about uh, the the seven thunders and the significance of the seven thunders, uh, that which is the most incomprehensible evil in all of human history occurred at the cross when these lawless and, and ungodly men killed the Lord of glory. They killed the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is yet the very, the, the most glorious thing that ever happened in all of human history simultaneously 
that this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God intended that, and if God had not intended that, we would have no hope. We would be lost in our sin. We would be lost in condemnation. We would have absolutely no possible way to find joy in this world. It would be utter misery and darkness and nothing more. And yet that very act, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ, is our salvation. It is our hope. It is our only hope. And brothers and sisters, if God intended that for good, if He intended that for your salvation, if He intended that to show His love for you and to show that He does indeed have you in the palm of His hand, if He did that for you, will you not trust Him? in the midst of all the other things that you'll face, in, in all the, the dark times that will come your way, if the Lord Jesus Christ was given for you, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, will you not then wait? Wait patiently even, wait in faith, knowing that if God did not withhold His own Son from you, as Paul says in Romans 8, He will surely give you all other things that are necessary for you? If God is for us, who can be against us? If He uh, who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him graciously give us all things? Give us the grace to wait in faith, to sustain us in hope until that very day, to even give us the grace to, to repent while there's still time, to look to, in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. Will He not with Christ graciously give us all of those things. He's proven that He will because He gave you Christ. He's proven His love. And He certainly will not forget us. He will not forsake us. He will not abandon us. So even though we don't, and often we can't, fully grasp every aspect of God's plan. We can't grasp every aspect of His purposes for us. It's all there. It's there already, written in the scroll. And for now, He has us in the palm of His hand. He has us under the shelter of His wing until that day when we will see Christ face to face. Please pray with me. Our Lord and our Savior, our great God, we pray as we've heard these words that you would give us grace to repent even of our lack of trust of the many ways in which we are so prone to question your ways. I pray that we would once again see the greatness of your love that you did not spare your only son, Jesus Christ, but gave him up for us and that we would be able to, to know without a doubt, that you will then give us all things that are necessary for our salvation. I pray that you would fix our hearts on Christ and the day of his return, that we would look in faith and in hope with joy, because we know that though we face many trials, the day is coming when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And I pray this in his name. Amen.